So I want to welcome everyone. Good evening and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs. And we're thrilled to welcome you to our spectacular Robert H. Smith Auditorium. But before we begin, I'm sure you're wondering, where is Susan Lacey? For those of you who know her, you know she's a brilliant, wonderful uh, woman. And we've had her here for our film series. Have any of you been to our film series here? No? Yes? So you've seen her in action with Lee Grant. Susan emailed Barbara Haskell and I last night. She came back from a flight in LA. She had laryngitis, and I think a flu. And she tried whatever she could to come with tea and honey, but she couldn't make it. So I'm here for you. <laughs> And thank you. So I certainly can't do what Susan would, would have done. It will be different. But we've got two fabulous speakers. I've been hearing them talk between themselves for about a half hour, and they're wonderful. So we'll get on with the program. And I, I just want you to know that Susan just felt terrible that she couldn't be here. But we'll tell her we all send her wishes for a speedy recovery. Um, so tonight's program is Culture Shock, New York and Paris, 1913. And it's organized in conjunction with the exhibition, The Armory Show at 100 Modern Art and Revolution, which is now on view through February 23rd. So another question to the audience, how many people have seen The Armory Show that we have here? So a good, a good portion of you have seen it. Um, and those of you who haven't, we hope you'll want to come see it even more after you hear this program. This program is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, which is the heart of our public programs. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz for their support, which has enabled us to invite so many wonderful, prominent authors and historians to the society. Additionally, I want to thank and recognize our Chairman's Council members and our trustees who are in the audience tonight. Thank you all so much for your support. So let's give all of them a big hand. And we are also pleased to welcome guests of Bard College who are in the audience with us. We're delighted to have you with us tonight. Thank you for being here. The program will be an hour and include a question and answer session, and we invite you in the audience, <clears throat> excuse me, you in the audience, laryngitis is coming here, to step up in the aisles to the two mics we'll have to ask questions. We do this so that everyone in the audience can hear you, the speakers can hear you, and because we're recording it and you need to speak into the mics in order for it to be recorded and posted on our website for the world. We are thrilled to welcome Leon Botstein to the New York Historical Society. <clears throat> Dr. Botstein is a wide, it, Dr. Botstein, a widely respected music historian, has been president of Bard College since 1975, where he's also Leon Levy Professor in the Arts and Humanities. Under his direction, Bard has become a premier American educational institution and an international leader in liberal arts education. In addition to his work at Bard, Dr. Botstein is a conductor of international renown and has served as music director and principal conductor of the American Symphony Orchestra since 1992. 
We are also delighted to welcome back Barbara Haskell. Ms. Haskell has been a curator at the Whitney, at the Whitney Museum of American Art since 1975, where she has worked on such landmark exhibitions as the American Century, Art and Culture, 1900 through 1950. Ms. Haskell has also authored more than 20 publications on a wide range of early 20th century and post-war American artists. In 2005, she was awarded the Lawrence A. Fleischman Award for Scholarly Excellence in the Field of American Art History by the Smithsonian Archives of American Art. Welcome, Barbara Haskell. Before we begin, I'd ask that if you have a cell phone or an electronic device, that you take time and turn it off. Um, we also ask that you don't turn it on during the program because it may be distracting to your neighbor. We also ask you not to take any photographs. We have a house photographer. And I think that's all I have to say. And we're going to start the program. So please join me in welcoming Leon Botstein and Barbara Haskell. So, could we open up and talk a little about what the, goal, the goals were for the Armory Show? Well, let me give a little background. You okay. probably all know the Armory Show began, uh, it was an artist organized exhibition. It had been preceded by several other exhibitions that there was sort of a spirit of revolt in, in New York of artists turning, wanting to find exhibition venues that were counter to the National Academy that weren't letting them into their annual exhibitions. So in 1908, there was a show at the Macbeth Gallery of about 600, 880 pieces. 1910, there was another exhibition with 600 pieces, all organized by these progressive realist artists. And beginning around 1911 and then formalized in, in 1912, the word that these artists gathered together, their vision was to have this huge exhibition that would glorify American art. And the realists and the art, even artists involved with the National Academy were part of what was called the American Association of Painters and Sculptors. They began working, um, as I say, in January 1912. And they very, there were 25 members. They very soon ran into financial problems and they turned to an, an artist named Arthur B. Davies, who had painted these very languid nudes, um, sort of cavorting in, a, in the landscape. And they thought he would be a safe person. He was very, seemed very reticent, very distinguished. And he single-handedly transformed what was going to be the celebration of American art into, in fact, an international exhibition. The original idea was that it would be basically American artists with a few international examples to give it credibility. And Davies began to have this other vision, which would be um, didactic. He wanted to show America, Americans the lineage of contemporary art history. So that he began with people like Ang and Delacroix, and on a whirlwind tour of Europe, uh, beginning in the fall of 1912, when the show opened in February, he and another artist, uh, Walt Kuhn, gathered together a huge number of European examples of, of contemporary and also, as I say, earlier art, Ang, Delacroix, up through Cezanne. And his idea was this, the notion that art progressed. Um, and on one hand, he wanted to convince Americans that more contemporary um, practices were, were just one in a sequence of, of uh, de developmental lines, so that somebody like Cezanne would have come from Ang. 
Um, what the show did, and actually one of the myths of the show in looking back, and historians or people tend to think that the Armory show was a, a full of modern art. And it wasn't. It was, there were 20 galleries, uh, 1,400 pieces. Very few of them were of contemporary kind of radical artists. But what happened was the first couple of weeks of the show, no one paid much attention. And then the, then the critics began to look at these two galleries that were ultimately dubbed the, the psychiatric ward <laughs> of fauvism and cubism. And the, they started advertising, you know, cartoons in the newspapers. Teddy Roosevelt weighed in. Everyone was outraged about this work that didn't look like anything. Duchamp's nude descending the staircase was a nude that didn't look like a nude. It was walking down a staircase. Um, the blue nude by, by Matisse was blue. Um, and it was the, con the controversy just generated this huge audience. And by the time the show closed in New York, 100,000 people had seen it. And we tend to think, as I say, that it was only modern art. But in fact, it was the, the ambition was, well, first the ambition was that it would showcase American art. As it turned out, American art was totally overshadowed by the European art. And um, the Europe the, what really aroused and became the pulse point of what happened later were these two galleries where Davis had brought together these contemporary, very radical examples of what was happening in, in pre uh, predominantly Paris. It was vanguard art in Paris that was the, the centerpiece. He, he was very unsympathetic to German Expressionism, and it wasn't, was hardly included. There were two examples of German Expressionism in the show only. No Italian futurism, because they had wanted to be shown as a group, and he didn't agree to that. So it was a very French-oriented view of contemporary art. And how did the American artists not only the American artists in the show, but American artists in general who may not have been known well, but were known. American How did the American art community it. feel? American yeah. artists dominated the show by about two to one. And as I said, you know, the, their expectation, these other shows that had preceded the Armory show were all about realism and the progressive, progressive art in America. And they felt very confident that this show was going to, again, affirm their standing as vanguard uh, painters and, and sculptors. Um, and they were horrified. Here, all of a sudden, American art was shown to be provincial. Um, and as, they, as, some of the com as some of the artists said, uh, you know, that it, we, we were shown to be arid, bloodless, to have learned nothing, to be totally dependent on Europe. Um, but who was they, saying that? The artists themselves. The artists who organized the exhibitions were all of it. None of those realists really had known what was going on in Europe. And the the interesting thing we now with you know transcontinental travel and Twitter and all of these things. But in 1913, there what people weren't going to to Europe. Uh, there was reproductions weren't flowing back and forth. And people, the artists that organized the show, really didn't know what was happening in Europe. They had no idea when they approved the idea of including a few galleries of, of European artists, which turned out to be more than a few, but they had no idea what was going on. So they, it, it actually made American artists feel very inferior, and that lasted for quite a while, that American artists all of a sudden, you know, it seemed like the best artists were, were on the streets of Paris, and Americans were, were totally decades behind what was going on other places. Did they try and change what they were doing, exploring some of these new ideas? Well, what was interesting is that at first, um, the, the 
um, organizers of the show had realized that this that the show would be radical and controversial, and they were very savvy about um, advertising. They'd been very savvy about these other shows that had preceded the Army Show, and they presented it. Um, with the idea that, that art, one has to understand that art progresses. And if you don't embrace the new, you're an old fogey. And this was actually in the, the very sort of the text of the Armory Show catalog. So they set up the proposition that if you, if you didn't accept what was, what was presented in the show, if you re rejected it, then you were behind. You were behind. You were provincial. You, were, you, you hadn't kept up with the times. So what is it? Oh, so, we, so, sorry, yes, you asked ahead. my question. So what did Americans do? So a number of artists sort of in a panic began to try to adopt these, you know, cubist and future and fovist styles, you know, bright color and fragmented forms. And it's a, it was a disaster. They really didn't, you can't just jump from progressive realism into cubism. And the artists that tried, mo many of them then went back to their former styles. Arthur B. Davies, for example, these, these languid nudes in the landscapes. He tried to paint futurist Cubist landscapes for a while and then ultimately went back to what he was doing. Um, the art, the artists, um, it made the realists in a way, it, they had been the most important artists in America. You know, they'd been the leaders and all of a sudden they were marginalized. And I, I think in a way that the controversy that happened in the 1930s between the modernists and the realists with great um, sort of vitriolic exchanges between somebody like Thomas Hart Benton and Stuart Davis, who was a radical. The, the seeds of that were from the Armory Show, where the realists felt that they had been displaced, and they were very angry about the idea that if, as even Thomas Hart Benton said, it, that it brought out the idea that novelty was good, and that to be new was to be better. But now they're more appreciated. Those works, those oh, artists. Oh, totally. Yes. yes, absolutely. I mean, those are the the works that now we consider the kind of canon of of twentieth century art. So, there was talk, or you read about, there were riots in the streets. Were, were there riots in the streets from this show, or is that there were totally riots in the streets in New York about about this show? There were, were riots in the streets during the Rite of Spring concert, but um, people people. Wrong to it. They were excited to see what was so, you know, as one commentator said, who wouldn't want to see a, a nude with eyes in the back of her head? <laughs> um, and the show went on to Chicago, where the students at the Art Institute burned a Matisse effigy. Um, in, and then, um, but that was the most radical they got. People you know, fumed in the papers about the show and uh, bemoaned, you know, what was happening to civilization. Artists that were defenders of the National Academy thought the world was coming to an end, that this, this sort of chaotic art represented the idea that society was going to become chaotic, that order had left, left, and that the maniacs had taken over. Uh, but in fact, there weren't riots in the street. There were just a huge number of people who came to see what was so controversial. Thank you, Barbara. So on the other side of the ocean, um, around the same time, there were riots. Some riots, or what were, whatever the riot was, what was that all about? Well, I, I think you're probably asking about uh, music, not so much uh, painting and art. The, the right because of as, as Barbara yes. suggests, 
a lot of the art that was seen at the Armour Show was familiar uh, to European uh, viewers. And uh, since the late 19th century, there has been an obvious split between an academic establishment in painting and uh, a salon de refusé, or was also a secession mu a movement in Munich, one in Berlin and one in Vienna, already from 1897. And, these were different because art has a certain kind of patronage. Art has an object which you buy and you have, you have collectors. It was a relatively limited public in a certain sense, uh, a large public, but um, yet limited. And to this day, there is a value to collecting. Uh, and uh, there is a more at stake than your opinion of beauty. Um, Music, I'm pleased to say, has no such consequence because it comes and goes, <laughs> and um, nothing about it has any value. Not the sheet music, <laughs> not the recording. It's worthless, um, which is why I like it. And uh, so it's never corrupted by issues of investment and money. And uh, in the 19th century, already, late 19th century, early 20th century, this modern art had its patrons. There were people investing in it. Uh, it was the high society of Germany and of France and of um, Austria that bought the modern artists and were delighted to discover that they became hugely valuable. I mean, I too would have bought, you know, a cow by Jeff Koons and then sold it for $40 million. I mean, you can't even do that with Apple stock. So, um, <laughs> you know, so this is, this is um, you know, one has to have, one looks at the whole issue of the, judgment of art in the late 19th century already to the present, um, beyond the great masters with a certain amount of cynicism. Um, so the, <clears throat> the controversy came more in music. Uh, and in music, the controversy, the riots, there were two uh, important events in, in Europe, one in March and one in May of 1913. In March of 13, there was a concert that had to be stopped by the police which had music by um, Schoenberg, by Mahler, by Webern, and by Berg. And then there was the famous Rite of Spring, which actually wasn't about the music. But Stravinsky knew something which the Armory Show organizers knew as well, that they were an era where, <clears throat> for the first time, you could manipulate journalism, or you could gamble with journalism playing an important role with an audience that really didn't know what to think. Now, in music's case, there was a hugely large audience in New York and in every big city of amateur singers. People are part of choral societies. You can go to the Lieder Kranz building on 87th Street. People sang, people played. Uh, this was like sports. You know? And so they loved professional sports people. And they didn't like modernists that came along, so the modernism that was around the armory show that was in New York in music was that of Strauss and Mahler, which they didn't like, but it was more akin to what Barber describes to be the progressive realists. It was realism music. The Symphonia Domestica by Richard Strauss was premiered at Wanamaker's here in New York in 1904. And it showed, you know, marital quarrels, a baby crying, orgasms. In music, it shocked a lot of people because it was explicit. He wanted to show that music wasn't a high-minded event. It was a realist, illustrative event. And there was a rage for Wagner and, of course, for Italian opera. But people played and lived with music, and um, they were offended by modernists uh, in a way because they attacked their own self-improvement. 
suddenly they'd worked hard to play music and they thought they knew the rules and they knew it was beautiful and what sounded good and suddenly told, someone told them it didn't. So the riots in the audience was a kind of attack an anger at middle-class self-improvement. So you think you know what beautiful is. Well, you don't know the first thing about it. You don't even know the first thing about Beethoven, whom you whistle, because Beethoven isn't about the tunes. It's about the structure of music, and you're so, so dumb, you can't even hear it. Now, audiences don't like to be talked to that way. Right? It's not a friendly way of looking. So modernists rebelled against the kitsch sentimentality of the audience. I want to hear a tune. I want it to be beautiful. The painters had it a little bit, in a way, easier. And the funny thing about the Armory Show, from my point of view as an outsider, is that it really created, it began the era of the visual triumphing over the, the period in which music was the dominant cultural form in a democratic, increasing democratic society. It displaced music and uh, visual mm -hmm. culture became hugely popular, and the Armour Show is a fantastic example of, it was brilliant, and it may have offended a lot of people, but um, some of the things overlap. So the revolt in Europe in music, and the one here, had something to do with issues of ethics and morals. This is a discussion we have with art to this very day. I'm not sure that the Armour Show actually was responsible for the rise of visual culture. Um, I I, think probably not, probably not, um, but it probably accelerated it. Well, I think what Success. it accelerated, what it did when your question, what, what was its effect on the artists, that, um, that the realists felt marginalized and very embittered and, and kept that um, sort of anger with them over decades. For the modernists, one of the myths, as I said, that, that surrounded the show was that somehow it opened the doors and the number of artists then became, mod became modern. Where actually, what happened was the artists that we think of as the, what we call early American modernists, most of them had gone to Paris, and they had seen Matisse, they'd seen the Cubists, they'd sort of witnessed it firsthand. There was a great joke, apparently. Um, Matisse had opened a class in Paris for painters, and one of the questions was, who are all these people who are in Matisse's class? And the answer was, they're all from Massachusetts. <laughs> that, um, that a lot of artists had gone there. They came back to America, and then began to assimilate ideas that they had learned over there. So it wasn't that the Armory Show told them anything they didn't know. What it, what it did is it maybe gave the green light that that kind of work was okay. And it, it also did, you're talking about commerce, it did usher in it, um, a group of collectors who began buying modern art in the wake of the Armory Show. So the excitement about the new and being, being part of that, that, that um, What's interesting also edge. about the Armory Show is that it's very French-based. Mm -hmm. And musical culture in New York at the time was very German-based uh, and, and had its roots in Germany. And, uh, and what's interesting is the musical modernism that took place in the wake of the Armour Show was French-based as well. So it was kind of an ascendancy of a French-based argument about what was modern and how things should be done. And that actually, in some ways, you just uh, brought up the next question, why... Why were there so many French artists in the Armory Show, rather than English, German, and Dutch? Well, I think that, so um, Arthur B. Davies uh, was, the, as I said, the driving force behind the show. And he was responsible 
for most of the choices. And he had this very didactic mission in his mind to show the development of, of art. And in his mind, it didn't pass through Germany. It didn't, that Romanticism was all based on Delacroix onto you know, Van Gogh, Gauguin. Um, and much like the Museum of Modern Art, you know, which is a still today a very French-based institution. You don't see a lot of German expressionists in the 20th century galleries at the Museum of Modern Art. Mm -hmm. It was a personal predilection mm -hmm. that somehow the angularity and the rawness of German art wasn't something that appealed to Davies, who was painting these very languid nudes. And that um, it, was, it was a personal preference that then ended up having a tremendous impact on the development of, of American art. Also, Americans, when they went to Europe to study vanguard ideas, went to Paris. They didn't go to Germany. And back to Paris, I, I'd like to hear more about the Rite of Spring. And what happened in the dancing and the music together? Well, the Rite of Spring was, a, um, was organized by Serge Diaghilev, um, who had created, was um, one of the founders of a, of a movement and a journal in Russia called uh, The World of Art. And uh, he had various ideas about the connection of the various arts, and he patronized both writers, poets, symbolist poets, and decorative artists and painters. And uh, he tried to get started in Petersburg, but actually he discovered that in France, especially since the 1890s, there was a tremendous enthusiasm for the exotic. And the exotic included Japanese and also Russian. And there was at the same time a movement among Russian artists and intellectuals to rethink their definition of the being Russian away from the West, but toward the East, uh, toward an archaic Slavic, um, both visual and um, musical and literary culture. So um, uh, Diaghilev had this idea of bringing to Paris um, opera productions that had set designs by Russian artists and which would show this more Eastern, Eurasian, uh, but really Asian-focused um, sense of the Russian sensibility. And the Parisians loved it. He brought Boris Kudinov, um, in, uh to Paris. He, he, a lot of Mussorgsky he brought, Rimsky. And um, he brought, he wanted to have the living Russian composers, particularly out of the St. Petersburg School. And um, he commissioned, um, and he had made a lot of money in Paris with this ballet <coughs> troupe called the Ballet Russe. And um, he, um, and, and then he commissioned Liadov to do uh, something on the Russian fire, the fairy tale called the Firebird. And Liadov was too drunk to get anything done. And he went to a concert in which a young a piece called Fireworks, oddly enough, by a young Stravinsky was heard, and he said, I'm going to hire that guy. And hire Stravinsky was a pupil of Rimsky's, and he writes The Firebird and makes a sensation with it, and then goes on to do Petrushka, which is also a Russian legend about um, um, 19th century puppeteers and, and in, 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 in a certain time of the year in Russia. Uh, and uh, it, it's really Russian folk. And, uh, and finally, they come up um, with the, um, the um, artist, Nicholas Rurich, comes up with the idea of the Rite of Spring, which is an, an, a sort of an ancient Russian ritual of a sacrifice of a virgin and so forth. And uh, they do the scenario, and they end up um, uh, doing this in Paris. Nijinsky danced the, 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 the title role, and uh, it, it was, it's complicated, really, what happened. Uh, 
it was, uh, uh, people were outraged, some people outraged. People argue mostly about the dancing uh, and about the sort of symbolism of the movements, uh, less by the music, although the music wasn't, um, more people claim to be at the premiere of Rite of Spring than the, uh, the, the Champs-Élysées Theater has seats for. Uh, so there's a little bit of a problem. Um, and um, there are various stories, and, and there was a lot of a run-up in publicity, very similar to the Armory show. And Daglev was thrilled that it was a kind of scandal, because everybody wanted to go. You have to understand that in 1911, the Mona Lisa was stolen from the Louvre and more people went to see the empty spot than had ever gone to see the painting itself. So you have to understand what you're talking about here, uh, about audience reactions. Um, and so this is 1913, just when the Mona Lisa was returned, much to this dismay of the museum-going crowd. Um, so um, in any event, what, what I'm suggesting is that there was a, a lot in the newspaper ahead of time, and then, of course, Debussy was there and recognized that the composer was a, a genius. Um, One of the things that's interesting, I think, the fact that the Armour Show and the Rite of Spring premiered in 1913, that there, there was Are a, you a mystic about numbers? Yeah. <laughs> but I, there was something, you know, in American intellectual cir circles, there was a lot of writing about, you know, the sense that we were at the dawn of a civilization and that the world was changing and the old ideas and the old values were being overturned by, the, by a new kind of attitude toward the world. And it, um, I mean, there are, are these pulse points in history, and certainly at the turn of the 20th century was one of them, where old, old ideas about, you know, Freud was being read in America, Einstein was proposing relativity, there were a lot, and technology was changing, the way people interacted, uh, people were moving from the farms to the cities. There was, it, things were in, in chaos in a way that was product, productive for creativity. Maybe yeah, I, 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 doubt, you're, you're so charmingly sentimental about this. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, 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 I'm a little skeptical about this. You know, people were moving from the country to the city for a very long time, and, um, and I agree with you that the 19th century really comes to an end in 1914, but it comes to an end in 1914 because of the war. Um, whether or not... There were things that were happening before 1914. It definitely clearly, but changes, I, but the whole idea about cubism and fauvism uh, coming in, it, these were radical, radical changes that I were think being they, made. They're much slower. I think where you probably are right is that there is a... We'll discuss this later. <laughs> Does everyone that know that probably, you're married? <laughs> there's probably, uh, uh, first of all, there is a tremendously rapid growth in the reading public. So you have more people participating in a conversation. And in a way, you have the first really public conversation. When you look at the readership lists of people who read about music or read about art, they grow absolutely uh, exponentially and as do the sale of books about culture and art, guidebooks to traveling, tourism, the growth in Baedeckers, in, in mobility. And there is some, there's a growth of a middle class um, audience. I mean, first we have to consider that the United States in 1913 is exactly what China is today to us. Everybody wants to sell, all Europeans wanted to sell their stuff in America. Mahler went to America in 1907 to take over the New York Philharmonic because they paid him a fortune. 
Dvořák came to run the conservatory here because they paid him more than he had earned in his entire career in Prague in one year. So the, you know, we're selling everything to the Chinese, and the Chinese are the new market for what we do. That was already understood about America. Very similar, maybe, to what's happening in China is that in America, in terms of the visual arts, is that the Armory Show did launch the, the commerce of art. That before that, it was very difficult. You know, artists would they would show their work at the National Academy, and very there were very few galleries. And that that with the with the rise of collectors, then galleries realized that it would be a lucrative business to sell contemporary art, and and um, department stores began to get in the act. So things like Gim Gimbal Brothers, Wanamakers began having exhibitions of contemporary art, began to show. Poirot designs and link them to cubism. It seemed like something everyone wanted to be at the at the cutting edge, and it really launched this whole idea about commerce. And unfortunately for American artists, most of the sales, most of the sales in the Armory Show were to for European art. And even in the galleries then afterwards, most of the galleries continued to, to privilege European art over American art. And up until, in 1909, there'd been a tariff, a way to protect American contemporary art. There was a tariff of 15% that, had, that was passed by Congress on work from, Euro, from non-European, non-American artists um, within the last 20 years. So it sort of protected the American market or was aimed to protect the American market. And because of the Armory Show and one of, and the collectors that came about because of it, the, t the tariff was abolished. So all of a sudden, European art could be, sh could be bought and sold here without any. The, um, uh, the parallel is that um, Americans, where I think Barbara is right, that there is a growing, because of America's, I think, increasing position internationally, economically, and politically, starting with the um, Spanish-American War and also its role in settling the Japanese-Russian War. Suddenly, America thinks, you know, it's an important place, and so Americans get resentful about the extent to which they have a chip on their shoulders to the Europeans. It starts with the English places like Harvard, you know, who, who quaked at the image of Oxford and Cambridge. They still do. Um, um, and, uh, you know, the irony that they still, you know, when College of Virginia and Mary, you know, American institution has to bring, you know, uh, uh, Prince Charles for its birthday, uh, still believing that inherited monarchy has some virtue, which it clearly does not, and um, as their behavior makes evidently plain, um, for a long time, by the way. Uh, so, um, so, you know, Americans have this insecurity about England, about uh, anybody with an English accent sounds more intelligent, prima facie. Um, and, uh, so, and in music, it was particularly acute. All the composers went to Europe to study. John Knowles Payne, Chadwick, McDowell, everybody went to Europe. And um, many of them got published first in Europe, not in the United States. Music was big business in the United States already. Charles Ives already begins to resent this European, and there's a group of Americans that begin to resist. Um, Carl Ruggles and uh, Leo Ornstein, and they start to say, George Antile, they, they start to um, rebel in a very similar way. Um, in um, uh, Ornstein writes something called Wild Man's Dance. You know, it's it really to shock you. And some of that painting is decidedly to shock you because art is no longer decorative. Art has a moral function. And the moral function is not to beautify the ugliness of life and the ugliness of life, which is poverty. The realists 
American realists had that view too. They wanted to alert you that um, artists do more than entertain and decorate. And so the new descending the staircase you know, started to force a conversation, particularly among the elite, as did modern music. Uh, but I'm still thinking about Barbara's idea that there was some kind of a, a kettle boiling that uh, I think there was came a kettle to the boiling. Tub. Yeah. But the, other, the, other, the other thing that happened, I think, and the Armory Show wasn't the only catalyst for it, but the idea that Americans in that show began to feel very provincial, um, they began to make us an assessment about Amer American culture. And there were, after the following the Army show, there were a number of attempts to to reclaim the territory for American art and to showcase American art and... and uh, but weren't there painters like Henry James who were Americans who came to Europe and made their careers in Europe? Wasn't Whistler an American? Yes, so in the 19th, like right, the 19th century, the three major American artists, Sargent, Whistler, and Mary Cassatt, all were in Europe. So the, the you know, it, it's very parallel. But, um, but after the Army show, there was a, definitely a drive for, for a national exp expression that would be independent of Europe. And there were a number of reasons for that. But one of them, I think, has to be attributed to the Army show, that it, it presented so, so boldly uh, the idea that Americans were indebted, totally indebted to Europe uh, for their style. And it's going to happen to us. In other words, uh, look at all the fantastic treasures of European art that are in American museums because they have the money. Watch our best work travel uh, to Shanghai and to Beijing. And, um, and those of us who have something to sell are only too thrilled. But, um, <laughs> but this kind of... Of, of view, and you'll see the Chinese artists, intellectuals, rebel against the assumption that the standard of culture has to be imported. Well, I just want to, you know, I think it's very special that we have you here, Leon, as also your conductor, and you have conducted the Rite of Spring, haven't you? Yeah, many times, yes. So I think it would be interesting for all of us to hear a tune. <laughs> 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 yes. What can? How can I help you? To <laughs> yeah. hear what it's like to conduct the Rite of Spring, what it feels like, what, how you experience. It's it. no different from getting anything else. So, no. uh, you know, music is music. It has, I think, painters would say the same way, same thing. Uh, if it. You know, you have upstairs, you know, at some kind of old master painting, and then you have the Duchamp, right, or the mm. Cezanne. It's, it's all the same, really. Uh, it looks different, but the act of making it and considering it are is very much similar. Um, so the, um, what, what is important about the Rite of Spring is that by its use of repetition and asymmetry and a certain notion of sound, it, um, it breaks the assumption that your musical sound will be a kind of illustrative of realism, that there's a kind of realism to music. When it's sad, it's minor and slow, and when it's happy, it's major and fast. You know, kinds of cliches, rhetorical cliches of how music illustrates emotions, pictures, and ideas. Just as the picture of the beautiful farmhouse that you put up in your Bronx apartment that has no view on anything but the next building, right? <clears throat> Seems to you a real picture of a real farm. It has the illusion of realism. 
or a picture that depicts poverty or a bellows, where somehow it narrates something. And the idea of it being enclosed in a space of time or a frame, so the new descending of the staircase is a kind of dynamism and energy and a vector. Uh, and so does the rite of spring. It breaks the bounds of presumed respectability. And so, but as to conduct it, it it's simply what is more, the difficulties change. In a Mozart symphony, um, there is an irregularity, a predictability, rhythmic predictability. In the rite of spring, everything shifts very rapidly. Um, but since there is no real development of material but a lot of repetition and a lot of sequencing blocks, the kind of attention you have to pay to making an argument is different than you have to do in a Beethoven symphony. The hardest thing to conduct in the world probably is a Beethoven symphony, not the Rite of Spring. Um, because what, the argument is so complicated and to make the argument stick is so complicated. Um, and if it doesn't stick, it's your fault, not the composer's. Um, so I, I don't think the Rite of Spring particularly is... is um, no, but the, fra the fragmentation in the Rite of Spring is interesting because it actually parallels the fragmentation in Cubism. Yeah, he was, in, he was, in, he was influenced. Because, uh, uh, um, Stravinsky was definitely influenced by visual, by looking at things. So I think he, a lot of this he may have gotten the idea from actually having seen a lot of this art and knowing a lot of the artists because he was in Paris for a fair amount of time um, before both for Petrushka, Firebird. He was actually living abroad when the Russian Revolution broke out. So, um, Barbara, I want to ask you a question, too, uh, before we open up to the audience for a Q&A. But I, I just had a thought, because um, Friday, this Friday, we're, we have a film series, and we're having Thelma Schoonmaker, uh, Martin Scorsese's longtime film editor. We've been having Thelma come do a series from her late husband's films, Michael Powell, and we are going to show The Red Shoes. No. Now, I, I read somewhere, I don't know if it, it's true, Thelma wasn't really sure, but that the theme, the musical theme in The Red Shoes was um, not The Rite of Spring, but had similar, similar feelings to The Rite of Spring, and that The Red Shoes had a whole similar quality, the story, um, which we will be showing. And when Alex Castle, my assistant, comes down here, he'll tell us the date, because I can't remember it, but it's coming up. Um, we're going to show that soon, too, in February, I think. Do you think that that is true, that there's some similarity between the, the, the running theme through the Red Shoes, the music, well, and, and the Rite of Spring? I've seen the film. Remind me who wrote this, the score for it. Do you know who the composer was? I, I don't remember. No, I don't remember who yeah, it was. But it's, a, it's a very impressive score. And the story is similar in the sense that the, the, there is a death at the end of the Rite of Spring. Uh, kind of, it is similar to the end of Elektra by Strauss, where uh, someone dances herself to death, uh, which Elektra does. Uh, and also in, um, in the Rite of Spring, there's a sacrifice um, uh, at the very end. Uh, and, um, and she dies, you know, she is obsessed. And uh, so there is something, and so the film is a fabulously interesting. It's more surrealistic. I yes. think the film is more connected to surrealism, which 
I'm going to defer to you, comes later, right? Then yes. This. Yes, good, thanks. Um, <laughs> After 1913. I don't have to go far to get my art history dates right. Um, so so one of, this is just a total an aside, but one of the interesting things about the commerce and this idea of the tariff that uh, was uh, annihilated or uh, uh, abolished in 1909, that the, there was one place in, in New York where con contemporary vanguard European art could be seen. It was a gallery that Alfred Stieglitz, the great photographer, ran. It was called 291 because it was located on 291 Fifth Avenue. And he showed European art. And he did it because he was, he was able to, to um, his gallery was, he listed it as a nonprofit. So he didn't have to pay the 15% the tariff. No one was buying anything anyhow. <laughs> so, and one reason he then, I think, began to show, to focus on exclusively on Americans is he had sort of lost his, his uh, exclusivity once the tariff was uh, abolished. And how did Alfred Stieglitz feel about the Armory Show? He really wasn't a part of it, was he? No, he wasn't. He was, um, he was this absolutely charismatic man who actually did bring modern art to America. Um, the gallery was very small. It was, as one artist that he showed there, Martin Hartley, said it was the smallest room in the world. It was 15 by 15 square, 15 by 15. It was just very tiny. But it was the pulse point of, you know, he did showcase European artists. Anyone in America who was doing vanguard art really turned to Stiglitz for emotional and financial support as well. Like um, Georgia O'Keeffe, who he was married right. to, as most of you probably know. Just right. And he hated the Armory Show because he thought it was a carnival, and it really wasn't serious. You know, he believed in in art as this magical calling that it would change one. It was would there photography the in the Armory Show? No. Uh, but he really felt that the, that new art would change people's attitudes about the world, about society, about interacting with people, and that somehow this carnivalesque um, extravaganza was not about art. It was about publicity. So I do have a, a question I want to ask you in particular also, but before I do, I just want to tell you it's, it, we will be taking questions from the audience. So if you have a question, now's a great time to step up to the mic on e in either aisle and we will be happy to take your question. And we ask if you are coming up to the mic that you just tell us your name, that you ask one question out of respect to all, everyone else in the audience. And, um, and that's, that's, real, those are, that's the end of the instructions. So, so Barbara, in the Armory Show here at the New York Historical Society, <clears throat> do you have a favorite painting? I don't have a favorite painting, but what I do think the show does so well is that it um, annihilates this myth that, that many people have, that the Armory Show was filled with modern vanguard expressions. The Armory Show actually was primarily historical, and it was conservative. You know, of the 600 American pieces that were in the show, most of them were realist. The, the other um, thing is, is, is that, I mean, for me, it... it, it properly, the show here, shows that what was meant by modern is not only what we remember to be meant by modern. Well, they didn't mean it to be modern. I mean, Arthur B. Davies did have this idea that he wanted to show Americans the sequence of art, the development of art from Ang to Delacroix. So it wasn't just a 20th century exhibition. It wasn't intended to be that. He wanted to show this But what was new and novel wasn't only, you have the Redon there, you have Munch, you have a lot of 
different. I mean, it's not totally about cubism and about... Right, no, that's what I mean. The Armory Show had very, very little. There were some 20 rooms, and there's a very nice chart in the exhibition that shows how it was set up in this, within this very didactic fashion. Was there a Brancusi um, in it, too? Yes. Yeah. Um, but, it, you know, but it wasn't all modern at all. Um, and, I mean, that's, that's kind of an interesting part of it. And, and how did the European artists feel about being invited to this? Were they all excited about being part of American? Well, no. I mean, no. I think America at that point to <laughs> Europeans, it was this cultural wasteland. And, yeah, but um, when the First World War opened up, a lot of them came here. Well, a few of them, but actually interesting. Some of them did come into the Armory Show. Uh, Francis Picabia came, and he because he was the one representative from Europe, he was you know, quoted in all the papers, and he became sort of the, the um, epitome of the European avant-garde art. And how about and Duchamp? Duchamp came because of the war. But, but then but, he was already famous by coming. Yes, but one of the things about Bacabia and then Duchamp later, they both loved America. And they, American artists were, you know, wanted to paint, um, you know, they didn't, they tur had turned their back on industry. That's a, something was, I mean, you could paint people, you could paint immigrants on the Lower East Side and that was viable, but to paint an industry was, was something that was somehow distasteful. And when Bacabia and Duchamp came to America, they said, this is America. This is fantastic. This is no, you can't find this anywhere else. And Duchamp's famous line that, you know, America, what she has to offer are her bridges and her toilets. He meant that as a compliment. Right. <laughs> the same thing as Dvořák castigated American composers for trying to write like Europeans. They should look at the roots of their own music, which were, he believed, Native American and African American. And the, the, so Duchamp and Picabia, the idea of turning to the machine and indus, industry was something that American artists did begin to do. Um, sort of giving the having been given the imprimatur of these European superstars. Thank you. So, uh, any? Oh, we have a one question. We, before we start that, I did think of another one that I think the audience would appreciate because we often do programs on presidents. What did Teddy Roosevelt think? Teddy Roosevelt was very outspoken, as he was in everything. And he thought, he, he had his comments, as did most people in the press, just for the two galleries, the psychiatric ward galleries. And he thought it was, an, you know, he thought the Duchamp piece came in for the most, the most castigation. You know, he thought it was an explosion in a, a, a munitions factory. And he, he thought it was, I mean, he was definitely on the side that this was maniac art. Yeah, it's so refreshing that we actually had a president of the United States who took any time to talk about art in any way. Uh, so I, I, I have nostalgia well, for actually, Teddy Roosevelt. He actually reviewed the show. It wasn't just that he that he made that came and made a comment. He actually wrote reviews of the show. When was the last time an American president reviewed <laughs> or a concert of any consequence? I think it was when Harry Truman castigated a critic for criticizing his daughter. And um, that's even beyond the memory of most people in this Actually, room. the presidents haven't been so, maybe they're wise not to weigh in, because Harry Truman is a great example. There was a, a show of American art that was, that was um, organized in 1942, and it was supposed to show progressive American art and was being sent to Europe and South America. And there was, um, Harry it began to get a lot of controversy, not because it was vanguard at all, all. it was fairly realist, but there was one painting by um, Japanese-American artist Kuniyoshi that some of you might know, and Harry Truman, it was a perfectly decent painting of a circus performer. Um, 
you know, perfectly conservative by our standards today. And Harry Truman, his comment was that if, the, if that's, um, if that's a, a painting, I'm a Huguenot. <laughs> Which is a sure derogatory expression for, you know, Huguenot is a compliment. And, no, it was very derogatory. Very, uh, dro <laughs> and, and Kuniyoshi was just a great, great artist, too. So thank you very much for this. Sorry, no, I'm, I'm sorry, I misspoke. Not a Huguenot, a Hottentot. Oh, no. Nah. Hottentot is a barbarian. A Huguenot is an entrepreneurial Protestant Jew. Right. So, um, is my mic is still on. Um, can you imagine the dinner conversations at their home? I just, it'd be wonderful. We'll get back to you about 1913. <laughs> no, we, we have to have you back for, we'll figure yeah. something else out. At least a Huguenot got to. So, our first question. I'm Jim Pisinich. Uh, Professor Botstein, you talked about the artists, the, the musicians from the United States that went to Europe to study music. And at this time, thir 1913, this flowering of intellectual pursuits, uh, a uniquely form of American music is born, jazz. Where did the jazz musicians fit into this? Well, uh, the, the real, um, I mean, the roots of jazz, of course, as you know, go back. Uh, you know, into the 19th century. And, uh, but the real explosion of jazz comes in the 20s, after the First World War. Um, and uh, yes, and that defines American music. And but it's already visible in, in, in American popular music and uh, in the United States. But there was a, more of a barrier, if you will, between um, the concert music the, uh, we're talking really about concert music and the institutions in New York, the concert halls and the opera house and so forth. And there was some effort to include, uh, in, to be influenced by that, uh, and that began already 1913, 14, 15. Uh, Arthur Farwell was an American composer that used Native American Indian rhythms. And um, uh, Harry Burley, who orchestra, who harmonized all the African-American spirituals, had been a student of Dvorak's. So there was some beginning to, to bleed into the, into the merge of the popular and, the, and um, the folk, urban and rural folk culture. But you're absolutely right. Jazz defines and has a huge influence in visual arts because then you know, a lot of artists begin to be inspired by jazz um, and by jazz rhythm. But after the First World War, it becomes the dominant cultural export of the United States. Next. Okay, uh, just a couple of little points of additional interest, a kind of FYI. <coughs> First of all, um, there was a book in 1908, it's out of print now, but it's at the Lincoln Center Library if anyone wants to research, written in French, the Harpagon Press. Um, we, we do, if you can, can you turn this into a question? We're looking for questions. Yeah. Uh, well, Maybe. I, I'll try. But <laughs> okay. kind of thing. It's quickie, but um, it's called Le Nouveau Théâtre. So in 1908 already, there was a book published on the history of the nude in the theater. You have Isidore Duncan, Lowy Fuller in the modern dance, also on the outskirts of the mainstream. And the other thing, Nicholas Nabokov's uh, 
Vladimir's brother did write a book on music, and he said how Stravinsky and he, he himself and the other composers uh, were studying music in the academy during the day, but at night it was when they uh, worked in the underground and broke dissonances and played so, with measures. I'm quoting. Yeah, yeah. so I, I have never heard of Vladimir Nabokov studying any music at all. No, I uh, said his brother. Oh, his, his next, his cousin, who was Whatever. substantially younger and... and um, and that's a later period, because he, uh, 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 Vladimir Nabokov was older than yeah. Nicholas yeah. Nabokov, uh, uh, considerably. Yeah. Um, that's number one. And there's you're no doubt you're right that uh, in, in modernism, the modernization of movement in dance and in theater already existed. Um, in Isadora Duncan, Sarah Bernhardt, there is a transformation of some theatrical mannerisms. And you have to put in also the development beginning of silent movies, of, of, of moving images, mm -hmm. which already are in existence, which uh, change a lot of expectations. Um, and the beginning of recording as well. Uh, and so there is a lot going on that, that changes people's expectation of especially the use of time and sound. Thank you. No doubt about it. Okay. And next. Uh, my name is Ronnie Gordon. I've been a fan of yours, Mr. Botstein, for many, many years. Uh, I go to the ASO all the time, Classics Declassified, and the symphonic work, and I've seen your wife's contributions to some of your concerts, and it is such a joy, such an absolute joy to see you both. I hope you come back again. <laughs> My question is, uh, I went to a concert that you did that had work I, hope, I don't know whether I'm audible or not, uh, that uh, you're was supposed to give me an understanding of this exhibit. And oh, yes. yes, yes. And it made a big impression. And I had already seen this exhibit without you know, a formal tour. And I was having trouble with the Duchamp new descending. I couldn't get it. And you did a piece and talked about it that gave me an insight, and I got it for the first time. I don't remember what the piece was, but the composers that were the all related. What the, what the piece was? Yes, that he did in this concert. He's asking what piece you played that gave her inspiration, you know, helped her understand <laughs> Duchamp. I mean, that, that's a... You know, unless we get to know each other a lot better, it would be very hard for me to figure that out. Um, uh, but, but I, one of the interesting things, probably, you know, um, if you, so the pieces that were done on that program, I chose those pieces really to make the argument that the Armour Show was prefigured a very parallel development that took place later in American music. In other words, we often think, we try to think that the history of music and the history of art run parallel. They actually don't. If you look at the history of architecture, the same. They, they, they don't actually run on a comparable timeline. Um, and certainly didn't in America. But in those, so I did an early piece by Aaron Copeland. Um, and uh, I did a piece by George Antile, the Jazz Symphony by George Antile. Uh, and um, I'm trying to remember what else was on that uh, on that program. Uh, well, you'll just have to come back. I'll have here to and come do back. Yeah, that, but but I think that that um, I tried to represent the sort of the the modernists, uh, and probably what you heard was um, 
sequential um, distortion of your expectations. What makes the nude descending on the staircase shocking is that it looks somewhat like something you might see, especially timed, and so it is, it's both familiar and very unfamiliar, and therefore it's disturbing, because um, it looks like it's gonna represent something and you're not sure what it is. And then it has about the subjective, your own sense of, of what um, was going on. Uh, but um, uh, I'm glad that, um, so there was really no parallel uh, when, they, when the organizer of the exhibition asked me to write on the music at the time of the Armory Show, uh, I really realized that the story was a little different in New York in music than it was in painting. And um, so if I had done a concert from 1913, you would have heard a concert of Debussy, Mahler, and Strauss, and Scriabin. And that would what New Yorkers would have thought was modernism from, from Europe. Okay, next question. Right here. Hi, I'm George Condo here. I have a simple question. Um, was the right of spring a 12-tone composition, or was that not part of what Stravinsky was doing? Say the question again, I didn't quite understand. Was the right of spring? Was it a 12-tone composition? No, no, it wasn't. So a 12-tone composition, it was tonal. The difference is that it used a different kind of scale. Our scale on the piano is a diatonic or chromatic scale. It has eight or 12 notes. <clears throat> he used a mixture of five note scale, which is common to folk music, or an octatonic scale, which is a, uh, it's organized differently. But it's to your ears and my ears, it's still within the realm of what we call tonality. 12 tone music rearranges all the pitch relations that you grew up with. He wasn't using any so of that Schoenberg kind of started, formulas. No, the first 12-tone piece to be written is 1921. Oh, really? So, yeah, it's a 12, 12, the 12-tone 12 system which Schoenberg develops, he develops after the First World War. Okay, that's what Thank you. Thanks. Well, thank you both very much. Oh, we have another, we have one. We have, one, one okay, one. We, have, we have. She stood up, so okay. give her a break. And your question, please. Barbara or Leon, I'm Mark. Just step up to the mic a little. This is for Barbara Orleon. My name is Margaret Sheffield. Um, why aren't the Cubists, the uh, futurists, the Italian futurists, more active and prominent at this point? Probably reveals my gaps in art history. No, they were very prominent. And, Could you um, repeat the question? So the question was why the futurists weren't, weren't as prominent. And the, the answer really is twofold. And in, in sort of paradoxically, they weren't included in the exhibition no. because they, they demanded to be, to be shown as a group. I see. And there's also some speculation that maybe they had better offers in Europe. Um, but, the, but the interesting thing is because Cubism was such an odd name, Futurism actually was more appropriate to the, to the style and certainly more appropriate to New Descending the Staircase, that it became the word that was used in all the press. So Cubism was um, you know, less, sort of less evocative of what actually was happening. So the word futurism was used before the actual futurist paintings were seen in America. Was it really Alfred Barr that started to collect them for America? For, for MoMA? I mean, when did they start becoming so famous in America? Barnes. Barnes, Barnes, yeah. Barnes, didn't Barnes begin before 13? No, uh, Alfred Barr was the one who, That's what I, you know, and that was pretty early. You know, yeah. the museum was founded in 1929. Because they seem to have the lion's share. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. And uh, Alex, just before we 
give them their grand applause, which you deserve. Um, Alex, do you know the date of the Red Shoes? February 7th. February okay. 7th, and the music was by Brian Easdale, if that answers okay. your question. Okay, thank you. So uh, come back to see Thelma, and thank you so much. Leon Botstein and Barbara Haskell.